In this episode of the Over the Bonnet podcast, I speak with a former winner of the gruelling Coolangatta Gold Surf Race and the Uncle Toby's Super Series who has had a long and distinguished career as a surf coach. Michael King has overcome being raised in Gladstone in country Queensland where there's no surf and through determination and sheer hard work has reached the pinnacle of his sport as an elite Ironman. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Michael King, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. You're a champion Iron Man that's turned to surf coaching. You've just got the Aussies out of the road. They're done and dusted. Let's firstly have a talk about what happened at the Aussie Championships this year. It was a great event, like particularly with everything that was going on, you know, throughout Australia and around the world with COVID, etc. Uh, to be able to run those championships was absolutely awesome. Uh, it was a shot in the arm. It's what the sport actually needed. There's a lot of athletes, um, you know, missing out last year and, you know, the unknown this year. So just to have the titles is absolutely exceptional. Um, a big shout out to Surf Life Saving Australia, who did such a great job um, in making it, you know, accessible for all the athletes and all the clubs to be able to go to Maroochydore, uh, Alex and Malulabar. They all, all three clubs run the Australian titles, um, you know, and, and the job they did and the way they went about it and the way the titles went is um, a real positive to them. Uh, to the athletes, it was an absolute um, joy for all them to get to race. And, you know, the competition was amazing. The standard of competition has gone up another level again. So um, it was a very exciting uh, and an awesome Australian titles. What do you put it down to, the fact that the level of competition is continuing to improve? Um, I suppose the coaching as well. Now there's there's more coaches um, within every club. Um, New South Wales as well now, like you only sort of had your, you know, two or three bigger clubs in New South Wales and now it's sort of branching out and they're following similar lines to Queensland where they're getting professional coaches in and... Uh, allowing the athletes to stay in Sydney and train down there in a professional environment. Um, you know, and I think that just the, the kids of today, they just, the younger ones coming through, um, just want to be the best they possibly can. And they, they're just raising the standard. You see it right from 14s and 15s now, the, their skill component, um, their race tactics, um, just the way they go about everything. Um, you know, they are very professional. They want to do well in the sport. And, you know, there's not just a handful, you know, you, to make a final, which is 16 to 20 people, uh, takes a hell of a lot of hard work and some good people do miss out. So, you know, the depth um, and the pathways within the sport uh, and also what Kellogg's produced last year has given everyone a, a really good opportunity now when they all know that, you know, that, there are opportunities down the line. If they want to make it to the next level, they definitely can if they work hard enough. What is the, the trick to getting to the next level? What do you tell young athletes? Well, first and foremost, you've got to be, you know, determined to reach your full potential. Um, without that, um, you know, you, you're not going to probably get to where you want to go. Um, you know, there's a lot of coaches and all of these type of people out there, but the will to do something has to come from within. It's the only thing a coach can't coach is the will 
of that athlete to be able to do whatever it takes to be able to push themselves to get themselves up to take the necessary steps so first and foremost you've got to have the athlete have that within them to take that next step uh, once you have that then you've um, definitely down to the coaching and you know trying to help them achieve their goals but also trying to maximize their full potential what's changing since you got into the coaching arena what has changed what's the biggest thing that you go yep got to look at that there's probably more research out there there's more information um coaching information um but just not from surf life saving either like if you follow the afl or you follow the nrl you know they're generally ahead of their time you know with recovery um you know how to train to get the best out of each person how teamwork can help so there are a lot of other sports out there that you can learn a hell of a lot off and you know, you can get on Google now and look up anything you want um, and it's right at your fingertips. So I think, you know, the research, the development of that has definitely helped coaches. When I first started, um, you know, surf life-saving coaching wasn't out there as such. There were only a handful of actual professional coaches and, you know, now there's so many more and I think that, you know, surf life-saving has probably helped that as well by running continual courses and, you uh, having information out there for coaches and athletes and everyone because I suppose they want to see the sport move forward as well and other sports are moving forward and you need to follow that trend and they're doing a good job with it. Are you surprised that you ended up in the coaching arena from your competitor days? Uh, not really. No, I always wanted to do it. Um, I really I enjoyed the whole sport. I enjoy everything about it. Um, you know, towards the end of my racing career, um, you know, I, I definitely had an eye down the line to be a coach. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be able to help people and give them the opportunities that I was given. You know, I'm extremely fortunate that I could have been a professional athlete for 11 years. Um, you know, and I wanted to give back to the sport and I wanted to give people the same opportunity I had. And, you know, I was very lucky on the way through to have great coaches, great mentors, uh, great training partners and you know, and it's something that I always wanted to do once I started getting towards the end. Who are the coaches that stand out for you when you look back at your competitive career? Yeah, well, there's a fair few. So uh, I was born and bred in Gladstone, so uh, country town, central Queensland. So, you know, surf life saving up there was pretty well unheard of. Not many people did it. I was in Tannin Sands <laughs> Surf Club, went through the nippers there and, um, I actually a coach um, that had been down to Northcliffe on the Gold Coast, Rod Porteous, um, was lucky he'd come back up to Gladstone. That's where he's born and bred. And he started coaching a group of us. And, you know, it was a great group. There were like-minded young guys that were prepared to work hard. And, you know, when you're from the bush or from the country, um, you know, there was that real mental toughness that was installed in us that, you know, that we had to work hard. We had to do things better than what they were doing on the Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast and all these places. So uh, we're extremely lucky to have Rod there. He was a great coach. But not only that, a great mentor in that, you know, he taught us technically how to do things right, um, sort of set us up for, you know, what it was like to race in the surf, um, you know, and all race tactics and all of that. So as young guys, we're extremely lucky um, to have Rod on our side. After that, I moved down to the Sunshine Coast once I finished my apprenticeship in Gladstone and um, ended up with Shane Delzeal and Nigel Dobell. Um, and to this day, uh, particularly, 
um, with everything in life, those two guys are really full-on mentors. Um, any problems or concerns that I have, I can still ring those guys. Uh, they took me under their wing and just taught me that, you know, that you had to do the hard work. And if you wanted to get better, you had to try and improve in different areas. Um, and that was as a person as well. Um, I was a country boy. I was a bit of a mummy's boy as well. So it was a bit of a toughening, <laughs> toughening up process as well, moving out of home for the first time and different stuff like that. But without those guys there uh, and their guidance and help, I don't think I would have got um, you know to where I got to because they, they were definitely a big influence um, just on my life in general as well as actually on the training paddock as well. Um, then Guy Leach come along, so I was, I was very fortunate that um, Leachy was training up at Noosa, uh, moved down to Mooloolaba, where I got to train with him and learn from him. Um, he's still a lifelong friend to this day, someone I talk to and uh, get on very well with and can run advice pass as well. Um, and when he came along, he taught me to be a professional, um, how to train, when to train, what to do, how to do it, how to race. Um, you know, and the year I won the gold in 91, he was Uncle Toby's Oz Kellogg's. And, you know, without Leachy, I don't think I could have beaten Darren and Dean Mercer that year. Um, Leachy, you know, went out of his way to help me um, in a lot of ways too, like with sponsorship uh, and different stuff like that. I didn't have a name or a profile or anything. And, you know, he managed to get me all different sponsors and help me out and want to help me out and, um, to have him in my corner was a major positive and something that, you know, I'll, I'll be thankful for to this day. Um, then after that, Leachy moved back to Sydney. So I, I really did need a change. So I went against the trend. A lot of people from Sydney moved up to uh, the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast for warmer weather. Um, I come across the coach in Sydney by the name of Terry Buck, who was an Olympian, um, an Australian coach, head coach of the Olympic team as well. Um, so I went down there because I think I needed guidance and I needed someone that could tell me what to do and how to do it and when to do it and not, you know, like the athlete myself when I was with Leachy with Nigel, Shane, swimming coaches, we were sort of guiding the program as athletes, not actually having a coach, you know, coaching us to be able to reach our goals. So I went down there and I was there for four years, the best four years. Uh, of my life, Terry coached me, uh, had a very enthusiastic and young group of guys down there that just wanted to train hard and they pushed me every day uh, and those young guys end up making it in Kellogg's and Uncle Toby's because they did the hard work as well. So, And not only that, the whole time I was there, Terry was actually teaching me to coach as well. So he coached all four disciplines the same as what I do now. Um, so as I was training... And as I was doing all the hard work, he was also telling me and teaching me um, the process and how it's going to happen, why it's going to happen, why we need to do that. Um, we're also very lucky that he had Brian Sutton there too. And Brian um, was a swimming coach that coached Malcolm Allen, Lee Havlin, and these guys to the Olympics. Um, he was very, very scientific um, and very good at constructing a program. And between the two of them, come up with a program for the Uncle Toby series. And, you know, without that, I, I definitely wouldn't have, I don't think, achieved what I achieved in the sport. Were you in the right place at the right time? No, not really, because I had to, I had to make that decision. 
So realistically, it come down to me actually, you know, sitting down and, you know, I had the will to do it. I had the will to want to do it. I was in Kellogg's um, and I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to go and race the Trevor Hendys, the guy Andrews, uh, the guy Leeches. I, I, I wanted to see where I stood in the sport. So the year I made that move is the year I went down and trained with Terry because I thought that if I wanted to beat these guys, I was already behind the eight ball because I wasn't brought up on the coast. Uh, my surf skills probably weren't the best. Um, so I had to do things different to everyone else and everything just fell into place. And as he always said to me, you know, you drive this program, you head north. So, you know, there was things there that, that I could have stayed on the Sunshine Coast and, you know, went about my normal training, hoping, you know, that I was going to achieve my goals or I could really get out there and challenge myself and, um, you know, see where it would lead me when I went down to Sydney and trained under a coach, you know, that that had was big on discipline, uh, which is what I think I needed. In the end, I was guiding my own program. Uh, so generally what happens there, you'll take easy options um, and you won't try and challenge yourself to get the best out of yourself. It's an interesting thing. How did a mummy's boy from the country get such drive and discipline and just desire to achieve? You know, I suppose that was bred into me. Um, you know, my, my parents... You know, right from the word go, whatever I did, I had to do the absolute best I could. Um, you know, if I was going to do something, I had to get in there and try hard. And um, so all the sports I did try, I, you know, I, I'd give them all my best. And I played rugby league as a young kid. And then I went to soccer um, before surf life saving, obviously, just took over. Um, but just my upbringing um, from, then, from them, I was very lucky, you know, that they allowed me to do whatever I actually wanted to do um, as long as I got there and give it my best shot, you know. And uh, from there, once I started everything, there was just something inside me that wanted to be the best I possibly could. It's interesting, though, coming from Gladstone, that you ended up as a professional surf competitor. Not too many people do that. Why do you think that you were the one that, stood out and really went the extra mile because of my training ethic um you know like there's a lot of talented people uh, you know from queensland country um you know but all the people there whether it be rugby league soccer whatever it is the guys that are prepared to work hard uh prepared to challenge themselves daily and you know don't use it as an excuse that you're from up there like a lot of people go, oh, I shouldn't be doing that because, you know, I'm not as good as them and, you know, you're disadvantaged. That's that's not true. So the biggest thing is you've got to be mentally tough. You've got to do the hard work. Um, when I did my apprenticeship, I was really lucky that I actually did my apprenticeship with Gary Larson, who played State of Origin, played for North Sydney Bears. And halfway through our apprenticeship, Gary moved down and started playing in the NRL or the ARL back then it was called. And he had exactly the same trait, so he was hardworking. He challenged himself. All the extras used to see Gary do, um, and then you know why he made it. Like he, <laughs> he always did the overs and aboves, and you know he was a great role model for myself as well to think, well, okay, he can make it. And, you know, he's done the hard yards, and you know I'm going to do exactly the same as well. Was it important for you to complete your apprenticeship first before you did make the move into professional competition? Yeah, that was that was one of my biggest things that my parents 
uh, always said, if you know, I could definitely go and do the sport and I could try to become a full-time athlete. But first and foremost, I had to have something to fall back on. Um, so I think the apprenticeship took me about four and three quarter years. So nearly, nearly to the five years. Um, no. I had so much special leave and time off to go away and race. And I was very lucky that uh, Queensland Aluminum Limited, where I worked, QAL in Gladstone, um, you know, gave me that opportunity and time during my apprenticeship to go and fulfil, you know, my sporting uh, actions as well. But then, you know, once I finished, I, I could not wait to get out of there. And uh, to this day, I've never gone back. I think I was probably the worst fitter and turner to ever come out of QAL. <laughs> I always had my mind on, on, on other things. And what was down the line, you know, I, I, I just wanted to get out of there and I, I wanted to go and I wanted to train. I wanted to be an athlete and I wanted to be in either the Kellogg's or the Uncle Toby series. That was my main goal. How important was it, though, the support that your parents gave you? Yeah, massive. Um, you know, like they used to drive me to the Gold Coast, to the Sunshine Coast. You know, we'd leave Friday afternoon after work. You'd race Saturday, Sunday. You'd finish Sunday afternoon. And then, you know, the drive home, we wouldn't get home some nights till midnight. And then, you know, we had to rock up the next day and go to work at 7 o'clock. And, you know, my father had to go to work. My mother had to go to work. And the sacrifices they made uh, to give me every opportunity. You know, we drove to Cairns as a race up there and jumped in the car and up we went. And, um, you know, they were the most supportive parents. Um, they did everything they possibly could to fulfil my potential and give me every chance I had. It was a dream I always had. They always knew I had a dream to do well in it. And, you know, they they were very passionate to help me out. Uh, never once were they pushy parents either. Like, you know, most of the time it was rain in the morning or stormy or anything like that. They'd be going, you know, you don't need to go training, but I always wanted to go. So, you know, everything come from me, not them. They just jumped on the bandwagon and, uh, and did whatever they possibly could to help me fulfill my dreams it's great that they did give you that support because it really is a springboard that you can use to have that confidence that you've got that support back at home oh 100 you know that's uh that's the biggest thing you've got to have you know a great support team first and foremost as well because you know there are going to be ups and downs and when you have those down times as well as generally your parents and sisters i've got a sister as well um, you know, that you can talk to and, and they can help and support you through those times as well. And, you know, to me, family's massive and it's really important um, as it is now with my own family, you know, three kids, my wife and, um, you know, my son, he started the journey as well now on the surf life saving journey. Um, so, you know, I, even though I'm coaching him, um, I also want to be that parent um, that is there to support him and give him every single chance I possibly can to uh, to reach his potential in the sport. Is that a tough line to travel, to have him as a competitor under your wing? No, not really. Um, he's a good kid. Um, and he understands, you know, that, that dad's dad at home and Michael or Kingy is the coach of training, you know, and <laughs> we have a bit of a laugh sometimes. Um, he, um, he always says to my wife, Genevieve, he always says, oh, my dad hates the coach. <laughs> so, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, so the things they go well at training, it's always, yeah, my dad doesn't like the coach and that's why the coach has been mean to me today or, you know, and I had to drop him out of a A-board relay team as well, which was pretty hard uh, being your own son. But at the same time, I had to put my coaches hat on and do the right thing by the club and, 
Uh, yeah, so they're just little things we have to go through. But, you know, he um, he definitely is a very easy kid to coach. He's hardworking and committed. And I actually enjoy coaching him. He's, a, yeah, he's very, very funny and quite witty, um, enjoys training, gets on well with everyone in the squad as well. So he's an important part of the group. Is it interesting to see your kids grow like that to become their own person and develop their own personality? Yeah, it is. You know, like... We had the pool um, on the Sunshine Coast uh, for 10 years at Mountain Creek. Um, you know, he had a pool in his backyard where he could go and swim and train, Zach, and never really got into it. He went to nippers and probably didn't really enjoy it that much, <laughs> but just, you know, went there and had fun and participated. And, you know, if you would have told me as a kid of, you know, 10 or 11 that he was actually going to go on with the sport, I would have said, no way. Um it wasn't until we moved down here to the Gold Coast. As soon as we got down here, as soon as we went over the Gateway Bridge, we got a new kid. <laughs> so there was, um, you know, some like-minded kids at um, the club I went to um, that wanted to train hard. And, um, you know, Zach just became a part of that. Um, there was a very good coach there by the name of Chris Clouston, um, who really went out of his way to, you know, help Zach, nurture Zach and, and work on Zach's confidence to be able to think that he can do the sport. And, you know, Chris deserves a lot of accolades for what he actually did for Zach, and he's the one that set him on the road to where he is now. Big shoes to fill, and is it hard for him to come out of your shadow? Oh, look, there's no – look, we don't even discuss that. There's no shadow. We just want him to to lead his own path, and where that goes is up to him. Um, You know, he's probably done better than both Jen and myself. Uh, under 14 first year at Aussies he's gone out and won the under 14 Australian surf race so he's won an individual gold medal straight up Jen and myself have never won an individual Australian gold medal so he's just gone how easy is this so he's already you know, done <laughs> things that we haven't done so um, you know but in saying that now you know it does get a bit tougher once you get into 17, 19s and opens um, you know so we always say to him just go out and do the best you can do and um, you know he's on his own path where he wants to go how proud were you when you saw him cross the line? Yeah, real proud. Yeah, I'm a pretty emotional bloke and uh, definitely brought tears to my eyes to think that, you know, that he actually has followed in both Jen's and my footstep. Jen also did surf lifesaving, represented New Zealand, raced at the highest level, medaled at Aussies as well. So, um, you know, to be parents and your, your son goes out and does that, you know, we were extremely proud. Um, yeah, so... It definitely was a pretty emotional day. Well, he really got the uh, got the goods as far as the sporting gene pool goes. Yeah, he has. But, you know, in saying that, he's a manufactured athlete as well. Like, he's not your natural athlete, nor Jen myself were natural athletes. Like, you get the guys that are very skillful and, and are just blessed with those talents. First time they get on a board, they can naturally paddle it well and ski and have great balance and things like that. But, you know, we weren't blessed with that, so... He's in the same boat. You know, if he wants to make this and and wants to do well with it, he knows he's got to work hard. He knuckled down, worked hard and worked on what he needed to. And, um, you know, he'll he'll get everything he deserves as long as he's prepared to put in the hard work. You talk about that he's not a natural athlete and you say that you weren't, but you must have had an incredibly strong mind. Just the grind that it takes, the just even when you're training, competing, your your mind must be incredible. Well, that's the most important part. Physically, you know, once you get to that top level or 
you get to a level within an age group where, you know, everyone's around that same standard, it, it comes down to being mentally tough and, you know, being prepared to do what the others aren't. Um, but to do that, first of all, you've got to be able to train in that state. So if you don't push yourself at training and you've never been in that state of fatigue and pain, um, you, your body just won't allow it when it's racing. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They, you know, they once they get to that point where it gets really uncomfortable and you've got that little devil sitting on your shoulder just telling you to slow down or, or you don't need to do this, you know, you if you've done that at training and you know what it's like and, you know, sometimes you've got to fail at training. Sometimes, you know, when you get to that point, you do fail. But the more times you get to that point and the more times you keep pushing through it, you know when you get into a race, it's going to take someone pretty special and someone as hard as you, you know, to be able to beat you on that day. So it's something you teach yourself, but it's something that also you've got to train. You know, that natural athlete has still got to train at that level, has still got to be able to put up with that pain um, and that fatigue. So once you get to that point, everyone's in the same boat. You say you're not a natural athlete, yet you still achieved what most people can't. You you were elite. Yep. I would say that you're a natural athlete because you did it. Yeah, so all I mean there is a natural athlete is someone like a Trevor Hendy, um, a Matt Poole, a Shannon Eckstein. Um, they're technically very good. They read the ocean exceptionally well because they've been brought up around the whole ocean and, this, you know, knowing how to read the surf, where to go, what to do. You know, even their feel, Kai Hurst is another natural. Um, you know, and they're guys that just can do things that are real special. Um, and then sometimes the guys that are manufactured are the guys that actually have to work harder at it to be able to do what they do. So, um, you know, and, and generally, you know, it takes that little bit more time and sometimes under that fatigue and pressure, you'll make those little mistakes, um, you know, and, and that's what I mean, the difference between the two. They, they, it all evens out in the end. But it means that if you're not natural, you're going to have to work harder um, to be able to execute skills, to be able to execute better technique, uh, whatever it may be, better pace out the back. You're going to have to work that little bit harder and be prepared to dig in a bit more than sometimes the natural guys. Do you think that a manufactured athlete appreciates it more when they do get success? Yeah, they do, because you just know that you've had to work harder. Um, you do know that, you know, that you've had to practice things over and repetitively, which is hard sometimes, um, you know. But in saying that, the natural guys are the same too. They're hardworking as well, but those things come a hell of a lot easier to them. And they don't even know it sometimes. Like, you know, Trevor was just absolutely amazing. People that always say, oh, you know, wherever Trevor goes, there's always a wave. No, Trevor <laughs> went where he knew the wave was, <laughs> where, you know, a lot of us, didn't have that same feel and that same vision. And, you know, we'd be paddling 20 metres away from him. He'd be on a wave only because he went to the right place, you know, and, and there was things that we could learn and had to watch and observe and make those mistakes to learn to go, how's he done that? And how do I analyse that so I can do that next time? And that's one thing I was never, I was always prepared to sit down and analyse after all my races on what went right, what went wrong. I kept the logbook. I've kept the logbook right from day dot, um, you know, and I was always trying to find a way to better myself. And to this day, I still do the same. And, you know, I spent almost 12 months 
analysing Shannon Eckstein as to why he was better, how he went about things, you know, what did he do different and what set him apart and to the point that I nearly felt like I was stalking him, but I wanted to know <laughs> what made a bloke be that dominant and that good. And, you know, that helped my coaching. That helped me with the athletes who I coach because, you know, I was trying to work out a way that we could, you know, get closer to Shannon, take Shannon on, and then try and beat him, which is something we were able to do. What did you find when you did analyse him so closely? First up was his course management was immaculate. Like, he... So by course management, I mean is where to go out and where to come in. Um, I remember one day at Newcastle Beach, I'd put a cross on the beach where he come in and they had to go through, I think they went through three times of each leg. Um, so I put a cross on the beach and thought, okay, what's he going to do today? And he's come in there and he's, he's got the lead. And some of the boys went inside him, some went outside him, but he went straight to that point. For the rest of that day, give or take 10 metres either side, he was on that cross. And yet if I did that with our guys, mate, we were 20, 30, 40, 50 metres, we're all over the shop and not really thinking about the easy, there's an easy and hard way to do everything. We're working just as hard, going just as fast, but skillfully wise and, and using the ocean and that sort of stuff. He, he was just putting the cleaners through everyone. Um, <laughs> so that was one of the biggest ones. And, and just his skill, you know, through the break, he was he, he could just put himself in a position and then he'd control everyone. So he would be in control. So no one would be taking him on. No one would be seeing whether he has that extra gear, um, you know, and then all of a sudden he'd turn the cans and then he'd start to accelerate and go to his race pace. So, you know, he was in control of everyone, what they were doing and, you know, eventually people had to take him on and, and try and get him out of that comfort zone. All the best athletes in the world look as though they've got time in everything they do. So we had to try and restrict and take that time off him and challenge him to be, then, to be able to rethink about, hang on a minute, what do I need to do here instead of being in control of the whole race? Did he essentially win the race before he even entered the water just through the mind games? Not really, no, because there are enough guys there still to push him. Um, but once he sort of got to the lead, then he just had everyone where he wanted them, you know what I mean? And you'd have to ask him if he thought he had them beaten, but um, I definitely know that once he got to the front that and or got to a position where he was in command that he was going to be extremely hard to beat. Things had to go against him to get beaten. So, you know, it was one of those scenarios. You talk about Trevor Hendy. He really set the bar. How yep. important was he to the sport? Yeah, massive. Um, he was the pioneer, realistically, of professional Ironman racing. I know Grant won the um, the two Ironmans, 19s and Opens, um, which to this day still stands. So, you know, Grant definitely got the sport in the spotlight, but then Trevor then took it to the next level. Um how he did things, the way he went about things. But the way he represented the sport, first and foremost, um, you know, was the best I've ever seen. He was a full-on professional in every, you know, every sense of the word. He, he would go out in the media. He was a well-respected people within, you know, well-respected person within the people of sport in Australia. Um, you know, he, he definitely paved the way for everybody 
within professional Ironman racing to this day. And now his son is also competing, which is pretty special with your son following in your footsteps as well. Yeah, you know, TJ was probably the same as Zach. TJ didn't do it when he was younger. And, um, you know, he's in the professional Kellogg series now and, you know, a great athlete. And, you know, I know Trevor's the same with him. It, you know, there's it's hard for TJ because his dad was an icon of the sport and an absolute hero to everyone. So, you know, it's probably harder for him to have that shadow of his dad. But, you know, he's definitely gone out there and, and you know, done well as an individual for himself. And, um, you know, Trev, I know for a fact, is real proud of TJ. Well, there's even Jet Kenny that's uh, making his own mark. How is it, we talked about your son, but all these guys that are coming through because they've got the shadow of their dad that uh, they're trying to eclipse, are they doing it, this new crop of athletes? Yeah, you know, like you look at Jet Kenny, you know, like he's a sensational athlete, um, blessed with a hell of a lot of speed and a lot of talent, um, you know, and he's doing an absolute awesome job. So, TJ, you look at Jordan Mercer as well, you know, there's a number of them out there. And I think the kids have just been around the sport, been around their parents and, you know, went through nippers, found they loved it. And, you know, even then they've still got to want to do the sport and, you know, they've all wanted to do the sport and they've trained hard and they've worked hard. And it's the same with my son. He loves the sport and wants to be a part of it. So, you know, it's good for all of us. Good family sport. Very good. Very good family sport. Also all the clubs, you know, they're, they're, they're very good. Um, you know, a lot of clubs now, are, you know, they, they support the whole family, um, you know, and it's a great place to be around. It's a clean sport, um, you know, and a, a lot of great people associated in surf life saving. When you talk about it being a clean sport, is there any sort of uh, involvement of drugs in this this sport that uh, you're aware of? No, not at all. Uh, you know, within the, the Ironman ranks and all the rest of it, I don't think there's been any positive drug tests whatsoever. So, you know, so it's been around for a long time and drug testing back in the day when we were around as well. And, uh, you know, it... It's a sport where, you know, everyone realistically, even if you did want to go down that line, you've still got the elements of the surf. You've still got the elements of luck and everything like that. So, you know, it it wasn't worth it with a lot of people. Everyone knew that, you know, you had to do the hard work and that's all there was to it. So, you know, it has a great record. It's a very clean sport and, you know, something that the sport should be really proud of. What gave you the thought that you could really make it with a, a limited amount of surf skill? I used to go down and do a lot of racing, a lot of carnivals from, from Gladstone. Um, and I suppose just the progression that I made. And also we used to sometimes stay behind a day and I'd be in and out of the surf and trying to better myself. Also we had a place just to, uh, probably an hour and a bit out of Gladstone, Agnes Waters, and Agnes would get a wave. So whenever the forecast was up and you knew there was going to be a wave there that weekend, we'd go down there and try and spend as much time as we possibly could down there. Um, but, you know, back in the day, I didn't even think about, you know, the skills and all of that. I just knew that I was working hard enough and outworking a lot of people on the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast um, that, you know, that I would have the determination and that pace to be able to match it with them and, I think that was the biggest thing for me. I, I just knew that whatever I had to do, I was prepared to do, and I was prepared to do it more than anyone else. That's an amazing so that, track. That, yeah, it gave me the drive, and I, I, I was always driven. I, I, I 
just always wanted to better myself and it's the same today when I'm, you know, here on this year, you know, I'm sitting down now starting to work out programs for the new, new season and, you know, every year I, I try and work out how I can better myself first and foremost, um, what I can bring to the program um, and then how I can then go to the athletes and try and get their full potential because that's my job. I've got to be able to give them the best opportunity and best chance I can to reach their goals. And, you know, it becomes a team effort. And, you know, it's something that I've always been driven with. I'm not prepared just to, you know, think, oh, yes, you'll be right. You know, we'll do the same as last year or, you know, I'll train like I used to train. You, you've got to change things. And, you know, I think that's my biggest thing is that I always want to better myself. I always want to make sure that I'm giving everyone the best chance that I possibly can. And that included myself. I wanted to give myself every single chance I could to be able to achieve what I achieved. Is it harder as a coach or as a professional athlete for you? Definitely hard as a coach. <laughs> um, you know, as, as your own individual self, well, you know, you're in control of your own destiny. You're in control of everything that happened because, you know, it was just you out in the water and you couldn't have someone out there to tell you what to do or how to do things. So as a coach, you know, you put your plans in place, you train hard, you do everything you possibly can, but... You know, once the athletes put the foot on the line, it's up to them. So, you know, you, you want to see them do well. You want to see them all do well. Um, and, you know, sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes they don't get the results. And, you know, sometimes they do. But it's definitely harder that you've got to, you know, take the highs and the lows. And, you know, someone can have a good race. Someone can have a bad race. So then you've got to be able to talk to both of them and be able to go through to help them to take the next step or the next race or or, you know, whatever it's going to take to get back to training in a positive mindset, not a negative one. So as a coach, you take a hell of a lot on and, you know, it can get difficult. It can drain you. It can, you know, like it can get you down at times because you're, you're trying your hardest and you feel sorry for the person, you know, that probably isn't performing to where they want to perform. So, you know, when athletes do well and they win, it's on them. When they lose and things go bad, it's on the coach. So <laughs> I get that. And um, it's something, you know, that I'll always accept. The athletes deserve all the accolades. But when things aren't going right, yep, it is me, the coach. And, yeah, it is my program. And, yeah, I do need to find a way to be able to change this around to get the best for the athletes. So there's a hell of a lot in it. And, uh, yeah, there is a hell of a lot more pressure as a coach than an athlete. When they're in the water and competing, do you race the race with them? Apparently, yes. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so, um, I can get quite animated. Um, which I'm probably trying to work on just to try and, you know, not have that in me. I, I, I can. Um, but I've got that competitive instinct in me and, you know, I I just want to see them do well. I really do for themselves. Um, so, yeah, it, it does get quite hard. Sometimes you can get quite animated or if something doesn't go right. Uh, but then after that, you've got to find a way then – to be positive when they come to talk to you after that race. So you can't be angry and, you know, carrying on when they come because it just rubs off onto them. So it's something that you've got to be able to control, which I still think I need to be able to do a hell of a lot better. By showing emotion, I think you're showing that you care. It really, I think, would rub off and push them to strive even harder. Yeah, but you don't want it to go the other way either where, you know, they think that expectation and pressure... Um, that you're putting on them becomes too great for them as well. So, yes, you've got to have that care. 
100%. You know, and they've got to understand that you'll do whatever you can for them. Um, but at the same time, you can't go over where all of a sudden that expectation and pressure to perform um, for you, the coach, becomes far greater than, uh, you know, their own self. So, you know, that's one of the things that you've got to try and uh, make sure that they understand that this is for them, not for me, the coach. You mentioned COVID a little while ago, and I always seem to be bringing it up. COVID, how yep. has it affected the sport and the training and, as I say, the sport in general? We've been pretty lucky, um, you know, that we've been able to go back to training. Yes, at the start, we had to go in groups of 10. Uh, pools weren't open, but we swam in the creek, um, you know. <laughs> and probably, if anything, it gave everyone a little bit extra time off. So it gave everyone a chance to reset, refocus, um, you know, and then when they come back to training, everyone seemed, you know, refreshed, ready to go, excited by the challenge ahead. So I found it to be very positive um, with racing. We were very lucky that we could race here. We had to sign in, sign out and social distance and all the rest of it, um, you know, which is fine. So Fly Saving did an awesome job to put the event on. Um, you know, I think that we were very lucky at state titles. Though we had a, a um, gentleman come and visit there, who was one of the COVID people. So everyone that was at Queensland state titles had to go and have a um, COVID test, and training had to shut down for that three or four days. But you know, other than that, we were extremely lucky. We weren't in bubbles. We were, you know, we couldn't do this or that. We were very fortunate that we could go out and train every day and do what we normally do. So um, very fortunate. Because when you're out in the water, you're really not too close to anyone anyway. So it must have uh, been something that mustn't have affected you too bad. No, you know, it was good. Like at the start, you know, we had groups of 10. Um, so then we had to have three different coaches on the water, um, you know, making sure that everyone's social distance and went five minutes apart. So as groups and then when it got out to 20, we were able to go to 20. Um, you know, but if that's our worst problem within our sport, well, it's not much. So, you know, they still have the opportunity to train. So um, one of the biggest things we had within our group and our club at Burley was that, um, you know, that we had to remain positive. No matter what happened, happened. And, you know, we could only control the controllables. So, you know, if anything happened, we were the first to go, okay, it's happened, let's move on, what's next? So, you know, I was very blessed to have such a great group and a group that were prepared to, you know, understand there were going to be a few setbacks here and there, but they were prepared to also do whatever it took next. Must have been really hard with uh, the fact that they might not have been able to compete. Like the, the Olympic athletes at the moment, they still don't know whether Tokyo is going to happen. And pushing yourself to that level, how did they go with that mental aspect of it when they're pushing themselves, not knowing whether it would be able to happen, whether, whether they'd be able to compete? Yeah, that was more, I suppose, at the start um, when we went back to training. Um, once we got deep into the hard work, you know, there, there's a block there where, particularly during the winter, you do your hard work ready for a Kellogg's trial. Um, as we got closer to that, they cancelled the cool and go to gold. So I suppose that sort of deflated a few. But at the end of the day, as I said, we just kept positive. That was one of our rules that we had to all remain positive. We had to make sure that. If they put an event on, we had to be ready to race. So I think that that was the one thing that got everyone through was that, you know, okay, well, 
that one's been cancelled, but they're still saying the trial's on. And, you know, uh, to have the trial and then for all the events to go on, everyone sort of looked back and went, thank God I kept training, thank God I kept focused. And, you know, it, it just wasn't our club. It was all clubs around Australia did an exceptional job in, you know, keeping the athletes motivated, but also the athletes staying in the sport and being motivated even after a little setback of the goals. So I think that it was massive for the sport and, you know, just shows actually what this sport means to a hell of a lot of athletes. Why is that? Why do you think it is so important? You know, like it's a sport they love. It's a sport they're good at. Um, you know, and they love training. They love to race. They love the competition. They love the camaraderie as well. You know, when we all get together, all clubs around Australia, you know, there, there's a hell of a lot of mateship there and you you make lifelong mates along the way. And to have that taken away from you at the Aussies, um, you know, was was very hard. And then we couldn't see each other and then we went that length of time. So, um, you know, I think that, all of a sudden, once we could all get back together, there was this real positive atmosphere. And, you know, that's why Aussies, it was an amazing event and just had a really unique feel to it than last, you know, a lot of other Aussies in that the fact that everyone was really grateful that we could get there, we could race, we could mingle, we could do things that, you know, you just mentioned the Olympics, like, you know, that's the pinnacle of all sports and, and they're still in limbo at the moment. And I don't know how they're doing it and I feel sorry for them. The kayakers have already picked, so... The people that are going to the Olympics know they're in the team, but the swimmers, you know, they're still preparing for a trial um, that might be on, that mightn't be on. There might be Olympics on, there mightn't be. They, you know, I know they're trying to be positive as well and, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed that they all get the opportunity to do their trial and go off the Olympics and represent Australia. As a coach, how would you be coaching the swimmers and, say, the kayakers, not knowing that the Olympics are going to be on? What would you have to do if you're in that position? Same as what we did. You've just got to stay positive. You've got to do everything you can as though it's going to be on. You can't change tack. You've just got to be every day turning up, knowing that that's what you're training for and you've got to be prepared to do whatever it takes. And athletes at that level, um, you know, they don't need convincing. They don't need motivating. They have that that will from within to do whatever it takes. And, you know, it's surf life saving guys exactly the same. So, um, you know, all you'd have to do is turn up every day and be positive and the athletes will lead from there. So, you know, I definitely know no matter what, with, if the Olympics are on, Australian guys and girls will be ready and they'll be going there to race to their absolute best. You talk about the kayakers have already been selected. How important, if you're training for something, knowing that you've been selected for the team, if you were in the team, would it make a difference to you? 100%. Like they can um, go away, refresh, reload, um, you know, and if you could have that downtime, they do blocks of training. So I'm pretty sure their coaches probably would have given them that little bit of downtime to do a bit of extra work or, you know, to be able to do what they need to do. And then they'd start to ramp up, um, you know, towards the Olympics. But I also understand that the swimming, um, that the selection process closer um, can also keep them up for Japan. So um, it, it's a, it's a, you know, I don't know which is right and wrong, but, I know if it was me, I would rather be selected know I'm in the team and then I can go out and train every day knowing that I'm there and I'm doing it. And, um, you know, definitely would make it a lot easier. There's a big crossover in recent years, like Trevor Hendy tried to make the kayaking team at one stage. Uh, there's some good swimmers which have uh, crossed over in in both. Uh, I think Kai Hurst yeah. went for the, uh, for the Olympics. Um, 
Is it uh, representative of the standard of the surf life-saving ethic? Well, most of the kayaking team are from surf life-saving background. So Riley Fitzsimmons, Lachlan Tame, uh, Woody's in there, uh, Alyssa Bull, uh, Elise Burnett. Um, they've all come from surf life-saving background. Um, so that makes up a huge part of that kayaking squad. Um, it's a great crossover. Those guys go and race at Aussies. Uh, Lockie and Riley won the um, ski relay, you know, and they, they did certain races at Aussies, but not all of them due to having to go to the Olympics. So, um, you know, that's a great representation of surf lifesaving for those people to go and represent kayaking. What about yourself? Did you look at that sort of thing, the endurance athletes for the Olympics? Did, did it ever cross your mind? No, it didn't. No. I love the sport of surf lifesaving. Um, you know, it was something I always wanted to do and... No, I just loved it so much and I just wanted to achieve in that. So uh, that was my main priority. A little while ago, you mentioned the gold, the Coolangatta gold, the iconic race. You won it back in 1991. Talk us through what happened. We did a hell of a lot of hard work. As I said, Leachy, I got to train with him. So it was the fittest I think I'd ever been. Um, but we used to do a manly gold um, in the Kellogg series and, I think I had an eighth and a fourteenth, and I failed at both of them. Um, and it used to be actually in January or February. We used to do that at Manly Beach, so there was always that in the back of my mind that you know that I'd failed in two long, long four-hour events. So yet again, I knew I had to change things up, and the goal was in October, so that gave me an off-season to be able to train. So I trained with Leachy and the middle of our squad, and we trained extremely hard. Um, what I remember about the race. Um, was it was a really hot day, um, hot and pretty flat, and there wasn't much assistance. So it was a real grind. You know, everything went to plan, you know, with the ski. Um, I was lucky then to get in the swim and, and, you know, there'd be a pack of us so you could sit in the swim. Um, and then it just went on from there. But I, the further it went, the more confident I felt due to the work that I'd done um, and that mental toughness and, you know, everything that I'd ever you know, all the work I'd done led up to that day to be able to go out and showcase what I could actually do on the big stage. And to win the Cool and Go to Gold, such an iconic event, was something, you know, I'll always remember, um, you know, and it, to this day is still a massive achievement for me. You must have been, your parents must have been incredibly proud. Yeah, yeah, you know, they did a hell of a lot of work in the background. My mum travelled with me, um, cooked for me, we'd take microwaves, we'd take stuff with us and... She'd cook all my meals, have all my carbo loading, just anything I wanted and everything I needed, she just had for me. So she was a massive part of the team um, in that, you know, on that side of it, she always had me ready. Poor lady, she got driven mad because sometimes I'd just, I'd be like a caged lion walking around the, the hotel room just waiting to race and uh, she'd be in the room with me, the poor thing. So she'd, <laughs> it would be good for her sometimes, but, you know, I was very lucky and something that I suppose that I could actually repay them to say thank you. You know, everything you've ever done for me um, today was all about that. So it was it was a great moment for our whole family. It might be a an individual sport in many respects, but there really is, it's teamwork. Yeah, it is teamwork. And, you know, I was very lucky too that I had um, Nigel Dobell and Shane Delzeal, uh, Phil Perrin and David Moles were handling for me and they were on moped motorbikes and had water, had everything for me. And 
that day Darren Dean Mercer didn't have, you know, what I had. They Their handlers were few and far between. So, you know, that played into my hands as well. And, you know, it was something that Leachy passed on to us, what we had to do. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a full team effort that day. You know, I had to go out and do the racing, but without those guys and without my family and all the other people that supported and helped me, I, you know, it would have been a harder day than what it was. So it, it worked into our hands. How did that change your profile, do you think, by winning the gold? Yeah, I suppose it did, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I was a country boy and I didn't really let those sort of things affect me too much. I, I just wanted to come back and train hard. and You know, probably one of the biggest things, you know, probably with nippers and that sort of thing, people recognise you a bit more and you could go back and give back to the younger kids, which was, you know, which I really enjoyed to do. I was a shy boy as it was, so... Um, be able to give back and, and be recognised was still nice. Um, but I also knew that you didn't want to be just a one-hit wander and go and win one race and that's it. So I knew there was more ahead and I had to work harder. And then there was also, you know, you had the Uncle Toby's guys as well. So then people always ask the question was, you know, well, are you good enough? Could you beat the Uncle, Toby, uh, Uncle Toby's guys? Um, you know, so there was always that in the background as well. And they had a lot higher profile than us and deserved it. You know, they they were the better athletes at the time. And um, so, you know, as I said before, it was always my goal and my ambition to go across to Uncle Toby's and race those guys and just to see where I sat in the sport for my own for my own mindset and sake. Serial wars, Nutrigrain, Uncle Toby's. Yeah. It put the sport on the map. Why do you think that yeah. is? Oh, I suppose it was more about Kellogg's and Uncle Toby's than the athletes, um, you know, that um, two cereal brands at, at war to try and get supremacy over each other. And, um, you know, Grant, Lisa, Kenny, Curry, Curry Kenny got that up and running um, along with Mick Porra. Um, and, mate, it was the most professional series and they did it so well. Uh, Kellogg's through Surf Life Saving Australia, um, you know, and, and had the series for a long time, but they wanted change. And I don't think Surf Life Saving Australia wanted the change at the time. Um, so then all of a sudden it turned into this serial war. But it was pretty funny that I was Kellogg's and I was actually training with all Uncle Toby's guys. So it probably worked in good for me that, you know, that we could all train together and not be worried or be guided or guarded against each other. We'd always bring our best to the training session and, um, you know, it worked into my hands having, you know, both Leachie and John Robinson um, training with me. So, um, you know, it was good. But as far as the athletes go, look, you know, everyone just wanted to, to race and do the best they could. And, you know, there was no war between the athletes as such. It was interesting, though, with Grant Kenny. GK had that iconic ad, the Nutrigrain ad. It was, yeah. he was a marketer's dream, winning the senior and junior Ironman. He, he really yeah. did set the tone for the whole sport, of course, as we talked about Trevor Hendy, but GK really pushed it to the front of the uh, most people's minds. Yeah, he did. He did an exceptional job. And to this day, you know, he still promotes the sport. Um, his profile is still one of the highest within surf lifesaving, and deservedly so. Um, you know, he's he speaks very well and he always has the best sport. He always has the sports interest at heart. Um, you know, and that's one thing I like about Grant is that, you know, that no matter what through his profile or whatever, he, you know, he still races in Masters now. Um, he always gives back to the sport. 
you know, and I, I think that it's, you know, that he does an exceptional job and should be congratulated on what he has done since he's won that junior senior and something that I suppose, you know, coaches, athletes and everyone within the sport should be very frank, thankful to Grant. Do you think it can be redone to win the senior and junior Ironman? It'd be a big ask. You know, you never say never because there's always going to be someone that's going to come along, um, you know, with that talent. So, you know, it, if they're going to do it, it, it's going to be a very big ask to do it. But, um, you know, it just shows, you know, that length of time that Grant's held this is just shows how hard it is and how good you have to be. And, you know, definitely that's why Grant is an icon of the sport because of what he did and no one else has been able to achieve that to this date. But who knows in the future there may be someone come along and just and take the world by storm and actually stand up and do it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Where would you like to see the whole surf life-saving culture go these days? What do you want to change if you were to, to push change in the sport? I suppose the only change that I'd like to see is it become back to an iconic sport it used to be um, when the Uncle Toby's and Kellogg's days and live TV, they've started that this year, which is sensational, and they're doing a great job with it. Um, but I think that we need to promote um, the stars of today a lot better. Um, they're very skillful. Um, they're, they're very athletic. They look great. They present well. Um, they market the sport so well. Um, they represent themselves, their families and their clubs so well. But their profile amongst the sporting people within Australia probably isn't as high as what it should be. And uh, I would really like to see, you know, that be able to get expanded throughout the media you know, throughout Australia. And then that's going to then set even bigger pathways for our nippers coming through. Um, you go to nipper states and it's absolutely awesome in every state. Um, you know, we want to make these guys heroes, like rugby league players and AFL players. Everyone has their heroes, so then they want to go and play this, the sport. So um, I still think that we can do a better job to be able to, you know, create these heroes outside of our sport and, in sport generally throughout Australia because the amount of work they do, their dedication, their commitment to their chosen path um, is some of the best I've seen. And where they're at at the moment, even the girls, the leaps and bounds that they've taken in their skill component, the way they race and how they go about it and the way they market themselves, the way they look, um, you know, is a marketer's dream. So I'm hoping that, you know, that someone might come along and, and take the sport to the next level where it deserves to go. And people then might argue back that, you know, then we're just getting back to that professionalism. But without that at the top, um, it doesn't give the young kids, you know, that pathway or that where they want to be, you know, like a Matt Poole, like a Matt Bevilacqua, you know, like a Jai Timpley young kid this year who's come along and finished second overall uh, to Ali Day or to be like an Ali Day, like everyone wants to be like Ali Day, but I still think that his profile could be a hell of a lot bigger. You know, and then on the girls' side, you've got Georgia Miller, Lana Rogers, Courtney Hancock, and, you know, there's so many great names there that I think that we can leverage off more to make our sport even better than what it is now. So, um, you know, and, and I just think that that's one place we can definitely improve. When you're out there and you're trying to push your athlete to achieve their absolute best, What's the hardest thing that you do when you're pushing them? Well, first up, you've got to train like that. 
you know that's that's first and foremost like if if your body doesn't go it never knows so if you don't go to that point it's never going to know what it feels like so first and foremost if you haven't done it at training if you've taken shortcuts or easy options at training um, when it gets really down and dirty and gets really tough and you know everything's screaming your mind's racing um, you've, you've got to be able you've got to train that first and foremost um, but you know when when you get to that point you've got to go back to basics um, the basics are the things that you've learned right as a nipper and you progress them all the way through but um, under fatigue under pressure under pain if you be able to maintain efficiency within your stroke, efficiency within your breathing, and just being able to consistently hold that, um, you know, you're going to be a hell of a lot better off because a lot of people, once they get fatigued and tired, they shorten their stroke. They try harder um, to go actually slower because then you become inefficient. So you really got to try and go back to basics and the basics are the key. You've just got to go back to what you train at, what you do every day, how you know that you can get through those painful times. And look, you you really get to know yourself, uh, you know, as an athlete because you've got to be able to fight yourself to be able to maintain that pace at that level over that given length of time to get a result that you need. It sounds like a good analogy for life. It is. Yeah, you can use it in all facets of life. Yeah, 100% you can. You know, the basics in life, what you get taught, what you learn, you know, are the things that you've got to try and go back to in difficult times. You know, always go back to what worked. You know, what made you good? What made you, you know, achieve that job or whatever it may be? Um, You know, the basics and people forget about the basics. They all want to move on to bigger and better things and you know, this got me here, that got me there, and all this other stuff they do now, which, you know, progresses. But you'll only get to there if you do the basics right. And the biggest thing in life and the biggest thing that everything I do is you've got to get the basics right. You, you must get them right. And through hard times, through tough times, and, you know, when you're racing and things are getting tough, you, you've got to go back to those. Do you find some people are good trainers and bad competitors and the other way around as well? Yeah, and that's a really hard thing to deal with. And you feel sorry for the guys and the girls that do work very hard, but just the nerves, the expectation, the anxiety, the pressure doesn't allow them to go out on that day, on that stage, and be able to show what they can actually do. Um, So they're, you know, one of the the biggest coach killers are that, you know, that pressure and expectation. Um, You know, if you can minimise that and they've just got to understand that they need to narrow their focus and just focus on the race and not the result. Uh, Easier said than done. A lot of people, you know, focus on leading up. Oh, you know, I want to finish here. I want to do that. But yet again, if you don't focus on what you need to do, well, you're not going to get the result anyway. So, you know, that's one of the biggest things that we try and do is narrow the focus and come back and focus on the race, not the result. Um, And then the other way, when you get the real lazy trainers and, and they come up and get the result, that's hard because then you've got people within your squad going, well, why am I training this hard? Why am I doing all this work? And they're not. They're getting better results than me. And, you know, it becomes a real thing where you've got to be able to then talk to them and talk them through it. It's hard. That's the hardest one when you come back the other way, you know, that some people are just natural racers. Some people, you know, the pressure and the stress and all of that doesn't phase them. 
Um, you know, and they're generally the ones that can do less work and stand up and get a result. But over longevity of a carnival, so that, you know, every carnival, the finals are in the afternoon. So you've done a hell of a lot of racing leading up to that. Um, so generally the people that are the hard workers and they can control that anxiety, their emotions and all the rest of it, that can get on top of it and get the result. I was talking about Shannon Eckstein and mentioned, you know, has he did he win the race before he went into the water? I yep. noticed Jack Miller, the Mud GP rider, only won yep. one race in the wet and yep. should have won other races. And then he was sort of in the doldrums. Then he finally gets his breakthrough victory. The next fortnight wins his second race in a row. Yep. Is confidence important for athletes? 100%. I've never seen a person win and be unhappy. So <laughs> confidence, you know what I mean? So confidence is massive, but self-belief is just as big. So you start to believe that you can do this. You start to believe that, you know, hey, I am good enough here. And that unlocks a hell of a lot of potential, uh, particularly mentally. Um, you know, it allows you to dream. It allows you to not visit any negatives or go back to anything that, you know, that you need to improve. All you're doing is thinking about progressing and moving forward. And, you know, Jack Miller thought he could only win in the, in the wet. And all of a sudden now he's won two races and, you know, that self-belief and that confidence is only, I'll tell you, I'd hate to be racing him in the next race as well because it's unlocked a lot of things now that he will just stand up and uh, keep improving and going from strength to strength. How did the win in the Gutter Gold unlock your potential and confidence? Yeah, massively. Um, you know, it was probably the first major, or it was the first major I ever won. And all of a sudden you did think that you did belong. And also it just showed me that everything that I had, had done since I was a young kid, the amount of work, the work ethic, the mental toughness and everything that, you know, that that was the way to go for me to get the best result I could. So, um, you know, it, it unlocked a hell of a lot of things, but just made me believe that, you know, that I was good enough to be able to take these guys on and be, be on par with them because sometimes you probably think, oh, geez, you know, can I make it? Can I get there? But once you do, it unlocks a hell of a lot of potential and most of it's mental, which is mostly what holds people back from their full potential. And that's an interesting thing when you are coaching to try and unlock that. But I want to talk about the Cool and Gatter goal because it's essentially around 50 Ks. It's huge. What was going through your mind when you're You've got the lead. You don't want to blow it. You've got the mercies behind you. How hard did you hurt? Funny. Like, you go through all different emotions during that race. So you have your high highs, you have your low lows. You know, you have your moments where you're just hanging in there. And, um, you know, one thing I've always been taught is that, you know, at your worst, you had to find your best. So, you know, <laughs> you, you had those down times and, that's when you had to fight. That's when you had to get that inner fight. Uh, but, you know, once you're out in the lead and I was feeling as well as what I was feeling, I had no fatigue. I had no pain. I just knew that this was it and I was going on with it. I didn't even look around. I didn't look back. I just went, this is it. And I knew that I'd trained for this. And, you know, mentally, I was just on top of the world. I just had flashbacks and memories of everything I've ever done and, you know, what it had mean to my parents and, 
it was amazing. You know, the last 2K, I could run and think about how good this was going to be and how much it meant to me, but it meant to a hell of a lot of other people as well. And, yeah, it was real strange. Like, I, to that first school and got a goal, when I finished, I, I had no pain at all. Um, the next day, I was out playing half-court tennis. My legs didn't hurt. I had nothing. It was the fittest I ever was. Um, I, I didn't feel anything. So, I, you know, as much as people would probably laugh at you, the next day I could have went training. So, But then the second one, when I got second, I spent about three hours on the toilet with wind pains. The <laughs> next day I was walking around like a crippled. <laughs> so it just shows the difference between winning and losing, um, you know, what your mindset and what your attitude and, you know, mentally what it can actually do to you. So, yeah, there's a, a bit of a difference between the two of them there. Is that what makes an elite athlete, the mind? Yeah, it does. It separates the, the greatest from the great, yeah. You know, you've got to be able to, you know, dig deep, fatigue, pressure, pain, do wonderful things to people. Um, you know, it, it's something that's not for everyone. Um, but the guys mentally that know how to deal with it, mentally know how to get through it, you know, the mind will always rule the body. Don't let the body rule the mind. A lot of people feel the pain in the body and then the mind starts going, oh, no, oh, no. But if you can work the other way and the mind keep the body moving, well, you know, you're going to win that battle no matter what. You moved on to the Uncle Toby series. How hard was it to, to get a start in the, in the Uncle Toby series? Well, we're pretty lucky. They had a trial every year. Um, so we had a trial at Surface Paradise. Uh, it was a 45-minute race. Ten people got through. So there were 70 or 80 starters. So that just shows, you know, that everyone wanted to be a part of that that great series. That year, eight out of the top ten Kellogg's guys from the previous year were trialling. So there were a lot of us going over and, um, you know, going to try out for Uncle Toby's. Um, it was a real nerve-wracking race. It was really, yeah, like I knew that, you know, that, if I didn't make it, that I was going back to Gladstone to be a fitter and turner. So that was the bottom line. I couldn't go back to Kellogg. So I thought, this is it. This is everything's on the line here. I'd been down training with Terry Buck for the six or seven months before, um, you know, and I had him in my corner for the first time. And the other hard part is we didn't start racing till three o'clock in the afternoon. And all Kellogg's races were always in the morning. So for me getting up at five o'clock, and pacing up and down that motel room till two th or one thirty till I went down the beach wasn't a good sight. I I was a bundle of nerves. Um, my poor mum, she was in the room with me and Bucky come up as well. So um, for them to control me and try and help me would have been a hard day for them, probably harder than me. Um, yeah, so I was lucky enough to win that trial and um, get through to the Uncle Toby series. Then we raced a week later um, at Surface Paradise again in a two-hour race. So. Um, I was definitely nervous, you know, winning the trial, going well in Kellogg's, coming up against the icons of the sport. And from all reports, Trevor had gone away and had trained like he'd never trained before because he knew that we were coming over and, and really wanted to make a statement. And in the first year, he won five out of seven races. Um, Leachy beat him in one. And I beat him in one in Perth, but I only beat him on a count back. So um, that just showed the dominance of Trevor back then. And I was lucky enough to finish second overall 
uh, in my first year in the series. And, you know, that sort of made me then believe that I did belong and, you know, I could race these guys and I always wanted to race them. And, you know, I always wanted to make sure I had that opportunity to see how good I actually was. Why weren't you going to go back to Kellogg's? I suppose when I left them, like, um, you know, they went to a different style of racing. It becomes short races. They did 20 races throughout Australia and then had a million-dollar payday or something at the end of it. Um, it was something that I suppose I, I didn't want to do. At the time, I wanted to race endurance races and I wanted to race the best people. I, I thought that my days were done at Kellogg's. I went over there, I raced Darren and Dean and everyone that, you know, that Kellogg's had, but there was always this unknown of, you know, I've got to get over here and I've got to race these guys. And the great Benny Pike, he challenged me in more ways than one. He he always wrote, you know, stuff up in the papers that, yeah, I did well, but how good was I? And, you know, could I match it with the Uncle Toby's guys? And, um, you know, I, I understood what he meant by it, but he used to fire me up and fired my sister up one day. He turned up at the races in Gladstone and, I don't think he's been verbal like that before in his life. So she gave him a hell of a dressing down to let him know that it probably wasn't nice what he was saying about me. But, um, you know, but he was right. He was right in what he was saying. Yes, you know, I had done well, but, you know, was I good enough to actually go over and, um, you know, be good enough to match these guys? So, um, you know, I've got to thank him too for a lot of motivation. Uh, and when I did make it much to, you know, he, he did and was one of the first to put his hand out and go, mate, well done. So, you know, he's a good man, Benny, and, and done a great job as well with sport on the Sunshine Coast. Because he did have his runs on the board as a boxer, so he knew what he was talking yeah. about. Yeah, he did. You know, and he's pretty hard-ass. And the best thing about Benny is what you see is what you get. And he didn't hide behind it. He was direct. He told you what he thought. Um, you know, sometimes you didn't want to hear it. Sometimes, you know, you thought, <laughs> oh, mate, come on, you're being a bit harsh, but... Uh, it was the truth, and, you know, you had to deal with it. And you could use it either way. You know, you could let it affect you or you could use it as motivation. And I chose the second, and, um, you know, the rest is history. Is there anything that you did find got you down in these pressure days when you were an elite athlete? Did you really have to fight against certain things? Yeah, well, you know, like I was a shy country boy. I was introverted. Um I really didn't like doing the media stuff. Um, I I found it very hard. I, I, I really did because, you know, like around my group of friends, I was fine and my circle of trust. Um, but outside that, I was very shy. You know, I can remember going to promotions, to media conferences and stuff like that and sweating <laughs> profusely. The anxiety was just so bad. And, you know, I think I suffered with that a lot when I raced. And I think that that took away from me being even better than what I could have been. So I, I think that, you know, that that definitely did hold me back and it was very hard for me mentally. You know, I got fined a few times for not doing press conferences and not doing the right thing to promote the sport, which I got, you know, I, I needed to do that. Um, even when I won the series in 94, 95, I found it very, very hard, you know, to be that person, you know, to be number one. I found it hard to wear number one. Um, you know, I probably didn't believe in myself, but just that anxiety of, 
you know, having to live up to expectation or that anxiety of having to front the media and all the rest of it was something that I had to deal with my whole career. Um, I've never really spoken about it too much at all. People that know me obviously know, but um, it, it was very tough and very hard and something, you know, that I had to dig deep. And, you know, I was very lucky. I, I did see sports psychologists. Um, I've seen a very good one on the Sunshine Coast. He used to travel with me. And without him, you know, as well, he was a massive part of everything I did and, you know, got me to a state where I could actually race. If I didn't have him, I don't think that, you know, my career would have been as long as what it was. Just that, yeah, it was just extremely hard and taxing on me. I'd spend so much energy, um, you know, trying to, to get over my fears and the anxiety of, of what was going on outside of that. And, you know, that become hard um, and also injuries. I copped a few injuries along the way, um, particularly towards the back end of my career. I had a hernia, um, had to have a hernia up, um, you know, and that set me back a bit. And then um, I got my ribs broken in a race. Holy smoke, what happened? I got hit. I got backshot on a wave on my ski and, Someone um, hit me in the ribs from behind. So Ouch. at Gilwa Beach in South Australia. So um, I was going well in the series to that point of that year. And then all of a sudden I was out for the series. And their setbacks that are hard, particularly as you start to get a bit older, you know, things become harder, um, you know, and, and that sort of got to the point where I thought, you know what, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have in the sport because, it was getting tougher. It was getting harder to stand up and perform. And probably all the hard work I actually did do over those years before, you know, without much science to it, like we just trained hard. When you rested, you were sick, so you rested then. <laughs> or you were injured, that's when you rested. Um, that started to catch up with me as well. So, you know, that was hard fighting with those little things along the way. And, you know, you, you started to lose that confidence, that self-belief and, you know, that mental edge as well. So they're the, the little things you had to um, to work with as, as you got a bit older. When you won the Uncle Toby's Super Series, you didn't win a race and there was a lot of adverse publicity and media at the time. How did you cope with that? Not good. Not good. Um, you know, when an icon of the sport comes out um, and you know, probably in some way states that you're not good enough to win because you didn't win a race. And, you know, it's, yeah, that that affected me pretty badly. Um, you know, and then I had a lot of people, you know, questioning, you know, whether, you know, you were good enough. And, you know, you knew that. You knew that there was talk in the background and all the rest of it. But, you know, the thing was I didn't set the rules for the series. Um, you know, I... I just raced and I raced to the best of my ability. Um, at the end of the day, I was good enough, you know, to, to win the series. I wasn't the most talented bloke in their series. I wasn't the best. But I was the bloke that was consistently good every time I raced. I'd put my hand up no matter what. I'd fight right from the start to finish. I would, I would get into a scrap. I would do whatever I possibly could. If it meant finishing seventh or eighth, I would fight for that position and, you know, that's something I'm proud of to this day is that no matter what, you know, like if you want something bad enough, you know, sometimes you're not going to be the best. Sometimes you're not going to be the most talented and sometimes you've just got to fight for every point 
And, you know, at the end of the day, I did that and I was lucky enough to, to come out on top. But, you know, it, it really did hurt me. Yeah, it did 100%. And, you know, from Uncle Toby's point of view, yes, I won their series, but I wasn't their number one athlete. And I don't think that they really wanted me to be number one either, probably because of the way I was as well. And, and I get that. You, you know, these guys promoted this sport and made it what it was. And, you know, you got a bloke in there that's shy, nervous, anxious and all the rest of it. And, you know, hard to promote. Well, you know, they have to go beyond me to, to, to get the real people up to, to promote their series. And you did win races in the series. That's the thing. I only won one race. So that was in the first year I was in the series in Perth. Um, you know, so I was lucky enough to win that race. It was a hot day. It was dead flat. So that brings me back to my Tannum days. Um, you know, I just ground everyone into the ground. I just kept going and going and um, fortunate enough to come out with a win that day. Um, you know, but that's all I had. But I was consistent enough to the first year in the series finished second overall. The second year I won it. And then the third year I finished fourth. So, you know, over three years, second, first and fourth, I think I was consistently, you know, good enough. Um, and then the year after that was when I got injured. So um, then things got a little bit tougher and harder after that. So, you know, but I, in my own self, I knew that I was good enough, you know, to be up there with the best of the sport. But some people didn't see it that way. And that's life. Must have been great, though, to challenge yourself and want to put yourself against the best and you competed with them and you challenged them and you you were right up there with the best how did that feel yeah really good like i can always finish now and when i did finish i can always look back and say that i raced the best people in the sport you know i challenged myself to see where i sat and i raced them over all all different distances you know in all sorts of surf and, you know, at the end of the day, I've come out going, okay. So, you know, I, I was always happy with that to know that, you know, had I stayed in Kellogg's and not raced Uncle Toby's, at the end of my career, I would have not been happy with myself because I was always taught you race the best, you don't avoid the best. And I always wanted to get over there and race them. And, you know, I had that opportunity. I got over there and raced them and, you know, um, yeah, it worked out pretty good. You did a 15-year stint at Malulabar as a coach. Talk about those days. Yeah, they were great days. Um, you know, I, I coached a lot of great athletes over those 15 years. You know, I had great support um, from great people in the club. Doug Jury was president for 20 years. Uh, Danny Shear was director of Surf Sports. Uh, Larissa Fry was in the office area as the administrator. Um, you know, and I had a great base of people around me that allowed me to go and do my job as a coach. Um, as you know, with committees and clubs, there's always fours and against. People are with you, people are against you. Um, but I was lucky. I was actually working for the director of surf sports, a club, not actually the committee, which worked extremely well. Um, and, you know, they were, they were great years. Years I look back on fondly. Um, I had a great group of athletes, a great training ground. Um, we were lucky enough, my wife and myself got the lease on the Mountain Creek Pool. Um, so that gave me 10 years where I could control the whole program, um, you know, and the, the athletes that have come through there to go on to win series, to win golds. 
you know, to even the ones who have reached their full potential, um, you know, is something I'll look back on with fond memories and, and, you know, that I was really grateful that I got to coach the people I did and the people that went out of their way to come up to, you know, to the Sunshine Coast. A lot of people moved uh, from all over Australia to come up and train with me um, is something I'm forever grateful for and, you know, and know that, you know, that they were very loyal to me and I gave them everything I possibly could as well. Because essentially you put Malula Bar on the map as far as surf life saving goes in competition. Yeah, you know, it did. It, it, it made Malula Bar, you know, a place where Ironman, Iron Women, surf competitors come to train. And, um, you know, it was very important that you have, you know, a, a good club on the Sunshine Coast. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to do that. And, um, you know, and something that, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm very happy and very lucky to be able to say that. I had so many great years there. Then they decided to withdraw funding and you're essentially out of a job. How did that all come about and how did you feel at that stage? What did you do? I found out, you know, that, that things weren't travelling that well at Mooloolabar. Um, and I went and asked a few questions. Everyone told me that it was all fine. Um, and then we ended up having an AGM. Positions changed. And then all of a sudden, I still had three years to go on a contract there. And in my opinion, things become unworkable. And, you know, like I, I couldn't stay there. Um, a lot of the athletes were in the same mindset. They wanted to move on also and be able to get some funding, you know, for what they have done. So, um, you know, they were very loyal in the fact that they got not much support, not much, you know, they didn't get paid from the little bar whatsoever, much to everyone what everyone thought. Um, so, you know, at that stage, I was happy that they could actually go out and move on and people were prepared to pay them. They could make money from what they have achieved. So we always had this purse before performance. So, you know, if you're putting the money before your performance, we, you find it hard to make it. We always put performance first. And these guys have performed, they'd made it to the top of the tree, therefore then they could go and deserve to get the money they deserve. So, um, which I was happy about. Um, so in the end, I went to the surf club and said that, look, I'll finish up on the spot and, you know, that'd be it. Contracted cease and I'd move on. So I had nowhere to go at that stage and they were dark days, I must admit. I, I definitely did you know, suffer a hell of a lot because I had such a great squad there, great people representing the club, but there were some people within the club that didn't want that. And that's fine. I, I get it. Yes, I moved on. I had to go out and look for another job. What happened? Um, I put in for a job on the Gold Coast. I had to come down for an interview and went for an interview and actually got that job. So uh, then we had to make some really big decisions as a family. Um, we lived on the Sunshine Coast for a hell of a long time. Um, the kids were in school, the older two. Then we had to work out exactly what we wanted to do and how we were going to do it. You know, I can still remember sitting there telling the kids that, you know, that I'd got a job on the Gold Coast and that I was going to be moving, um, how, what they thought of it, the tears and everything <laughs> that went with it. You know, it was, it was a hard time on our family, but not unlike anyone else. Like, people go through this all the time and... Um, you know, it's something we had to deal with and had to make a decision. And once we made that decision and we were happy with that decision, we just went, you know what, let's go on with it. So, yeah, we moved to the Gold Coast, so down to the club down here where 
I uh, had the opportunity to coach there for five years. So uh, It has been described as a blessing in disguise. Oh, look, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, you know, you think the grass is green on the other side, but there's always Bindi. So, you know, first, <laughs> first 12 months were good. But then after that, there were things that started to change and happen. And, you know, there were the different warning signs, I suppose. And it made it quite difficult um, for me as the coach, um, you know, and something I had to deal with. But my loyalty um, to the athletes I coach. Um, was the thing that was far greater than, you know, than the club I was at. And I wanted to hang in there because they were, you know, good enough to give me the job there. And, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to fulfil that obligation and make, you know, the club everything I possibly could. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't turn out. But, you know, that's that's life. Okay. Now, these days, you're in a good place? Yeah, 100%. So... Um, after COVID, you know, um, I was lucky enough that um, a current coach at the club, Burley, um, had resigned. And then they come to me, um, you know, I had a, an interview with them. I had a couple of discussions with them and, you know, it felt great. Um, so I accepted the job at Burley. Um, and honestly, it's the best thing I've ever done. Like I now I'm at a place... Um, where I'm happy, um, where I can go and do my job as a coach. Um, I have great support there from, you know, the, the committee, the executive committee, um, my director of surf sports, the old boys um, within the club. They have an old boys group, um, life members, and, you know, all the competitors. And we had a, a huge influx of people join the club with me. Um, and the way they've joined with the people that were there, the existing members, um, has been seamless and something that, you know, that I'm extremely proud of and proud to say that I'm a massive part of early and you know, I'm definitely looking forward to the future there as well. One of the things that I just want to mention about the camaraderie in the sport with the, the squads, the training, the get-togethers, as you said, how important is that camaraderie in surf lifesaving? It's massive. You know, like the sport, probably doesn't um, have the most prize money or the biggest prize pools and things like that. So somewhere within there, you've got to have a social side as well. Um, and it's something that, you know, that this club does so well. We're always having social functions. Um, we have a patron at the club that puts on a patron's night. And, um, you know, that social side of things as what has brought a whole squad together and has brought the whole club together. Um, just by having all these different functions and feeling welcome and wanted and, you know, to be a part of such a great, iconic club. You're an absolute inspiration and it's been a pleasure to share some time with you. And I think the message of what you're sharing with your surf athletes really is life coaching. A lot of people can take away that pushing through adversity. So, Michael King, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. It was really enjoyable.